Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now, I'm really pleased to say, is Alberto Gallo, Algebra's Head of Macro Strategies, formerly heading up credit over at RBS. Alberto, always great to catch up with you. And I want to start there with the market. Risk assets rolling over, but the bid into Treasuries really mild. Why? I think today it's a seasonal effect. Um, investors bought duration at the end of the first quarter, and today there's a little bit of a, a widening in yields. Having said that, um, we think that the growth momentum is fading, and um, you know all the uh, idea of having four or three and a half percent yield on ten-year Treasury. Uh, you know we're going to have to wait a lot longer for that. So we are still in a bull market for bonds, and uh, um, duration is still um, is still in demand from investors, not just in the U.S. but also across the world in emerging market local currency and in Europe. Because remember, investors want also alternatives to treasuries. Treasuries are slowly losing safe haven status due to also political volatility. Alberto, at the front end is a very different story, though. Despite the market dropping 2%, down 3% seemingly at one point, the bid does not come in to the front end of the Treasury curve. There is a view in the market still that the Fed will continue to deliver rate hikes. Is that the right view from where you guys are sitting at Algebris? I believe that is still the case. And uh, let's remember, though, that the Fed is hiking in an environment where the ECB and the BOJ and other central banks are still dovish. So they have the benefit of uh, hiking without the long end of the curve uh, moving wider. The long end of the curve in the end is very it's much more influential for for long-term investment decisions by companies and also households buying uh, buying homes with uh, with long long-end mortgages 10 20 30 year mortgages so effectively the boj and the ecb are um keeping the long end of the us treasury stable and making the fed a favor um, but overall um normalization across global central banks is going to be a lot more difficult because growth momentum is fading and you know the impact of the fiscal stimulus is fading and instead of that we're having you know a, a trade a, a mild trade war or or, or trade uh, skirmish at the moment uh, so what we need to regain momentum here is is another fiscal effort, but yeah. this time not by the U.S., but by Europe or Japan. And I, I don't see that at the moment. Well, the, the backdrop to all of this at the moment is a high volatility regime, Alberto. We've got the VIX north of 20. It bleeds a little bit lower today, but the story has been elevated volatility over the last couple of months. We had the VIX shock of about a month ago. And what's clear is it's taking a long, long time to actually clear the decks and for Volta to roll over south of 20. Why is that happening? Why have we got got this elevated volatility regime. And just looking at the term structure of the VIX at the moment, Alberto, counterintuitively, it is still inverted. Can we remain like this for a lot longer? I think so. The short answer is financial markets are a lot more fragile. With quantitative easing for 10 years, we had a recovery in the economy, but we have built 
fragilities embedded in the market. Um, investors have been buying uh, equities for yields. They've been buying bonds for capital gains. Uh, a lot of investors have been selling volatility. And markets overall have become a lot more one-sided with more passive strategies that, that herd into the same trades. Uh, so we end up with a pyramid of trades that we've discussed over the last month, where uh, a lot of trades, a lot of strategies depend on continued fiscal, continued monetary stimulus on interest rates staying low and political stability. And gradually, some of the um, assumptions at the bottom of the pyramid are, are, are well. basically falling apart. Uh, so I, I think the market, you know, we're still in a growing economy, but the market needs to deal with this increased fragility. Volatility is going to remain high. And this is one of the trades I like the most, to, to, to bet on volatility staying in a higher range. Within that bet, are there a lot of opportunities out there or is Alberto Gallo managing for the coupon? I mean, can you actually make, whether you go long, short or whatever the creative aspect is of the trade, can you, can you actually make a trade happen, you know, and get a total return or is it to manage to the coupon? In fixed income, we're, we still think that um, duration outside of the U.S. is interesting. So European periphery uh, and also emerging market local currency bonds in, in Russia and Brazil. So we, there is a flight of capital away from the U.S., which has been increasing over the last you know, 10 years, has been the destination of a lot of yeah. reserve uh, into other assets. So, the, the, so in fixed income, a relative trade works. Uh, in, in equities, we're focusing on shorts. John, you want a theme for April? What Mr. Gallo just said there. Yeah. The bet, the idea, the observation of money moving out of the U.S. That's a really interesting trend. I, I think that's, that's been, been a trend through the first quarter as well. A lot of people talking about that off the back of some of the issues, the market issues here in the United States. Alberto, I didn't miss that. Short equities. Short equities where? Because as a house, Algebris has been incredibly bullish on the continent in Europe. So, so where are you short equities? I mean, overall, we still keep a positive bias because the economy is growing, but we've been buying protection on these sectors that we, you know, we thought were the most overvalued. So we, we're talking about the U.S. and, and tech. And, uh, you know, no one knows if the correction has been, uh, if the correction is done uh, now. Uh, but generally, the markets which we think are still undervalued are uh, emerging markets, Europe and Japan, uh, which haven't benefited from earnings uplift over the last five, six months as much as the U.S. and, and you know, haven't benefited from investor flows as much. So valuations are lower and earnings, earning expectations are, are a little bit more moderate uh, outside of the U.S. Uh, now, obviously, the question is whether there will be another big tail event, another big sell-off. Uh, no one knows the answer to that. Um, but generally, you know, we're, we're mildly cautious uh, at the moment. Um, we're closing some of our shorts as the market has already uh, corrected again. Uh, but we do think volatility will stay in a high range. So um, uh, I don't think we are going to go back to Goldilocks uh, now. Alberto, your bread and butter is credit. And credit hasn't been great in Europe over the last month or so. It's been phenomenal since the ECB started its bond buying program. Where are you guys on credit right now, Europe versus the US? And, and how are you exposed for it? 
we're looking for places to hide. There's less, uh, less and less. Uh, Europe is still one of them. Uh, balance sheets are less levered than the U.S. The ECB is still very dovish, uh, and war is about periphery spreads. So in Europe, you still have, um, you still have Greece, you still have Portugal, and also BTPs in Italy didn't widen even though the election outcome is uncertain because there is demand for substitutes to, to dollar assets. Uh, bank debt, banks are going to do better in an, inflation, in an environment where inflation is slowly picking up and interest yeah. rates are slowly picking up globally. So there's a few niches. There is no trade with a massive capital appreciation, yeah. but you can get a decent coupon in some markets where, where central banks yeah. are still dovish. Alberto Gallo, thank you so much with Algebra this morning. Greatly appreciate it. John, that's always valuable. You know, he's got he's got a real European focus. I get that yeah. with his work at Royal Bank of Scotland uh, for years. But uh, it, it's really interesting about flows. It's something I got to read a lot more about. Yeah, and Alberto, let's be very clear, has done a phenomenal job moving from RBS to to Algebris to head up the the macro credit fund at Algebris, delivering a one year return. Tom in credit over the last year, which I think is really significant in in the global bond market and credit markets of just right. over seven percent, which is um, one hell of a return over the last That's, year for many credit investors. Yeah. That was with smoke and or mirrors? Um, smoke and a couple of mirrors. No, he's That's done very, he's done very, very well. I didn't know that. Alberto Gallo, Algebra's yeah. head of macro strategist. John Farrow and Tom Keen with us now. Seth Masters for years with Bernstein, and he's now a private investor looking at angel-like companies. John wants to go to Spotify, and I want to do that. But quickly here, you are fluent in Mandarin, right? Yeah. Did your mother make you do that in third grade or fifth grade or something? No, I did that in college to myself. You you inflicted it upon yourself. <laughs> what do you think of striving Upper East Side mothers that go, you need to learn Mandarin? How do you respond to that? I think it's um, predictable because the same people would have been saying you've got to learn Japanese in 1980. Exactly. Um, but I hope that some of the kids come out of that really enriched with the ability to... Or at least a culture and a history. Yeah. yeah. John, I had a little different upbringing. My mother looked at me and said, you've got to learn English. And you know where that went. <laughs> Let's go to Spotify. How did that work out for you? I'm, I'm, still, well. I'm still trying to work it out. Um, Seth, it's always great to get your insight on, on something. And what I think is really interesting about Spotify today is no new shares, no new capital, just setting a price in public markets. And what we've seen over the last few years in private markets is incredibly rich valuations and money just literally flooding flying towards absolutely everything and anything as an angel investor now do you look at that situation in private markets as one of which um whether is too much cash being thrown at everything or or do you draw a line somewhere to say that actually it doesn't work like that well it's a really great question and i think it's very nuanced because there are different segments of that market when companies are first started they actually aren't necessarily that highly priced because the risk is stratospheric. Very few new companies actually succeed. As they move through the process of success, though, at some point, they become attractive to venture capitalists and maybe then to private equity investors. And what's happened is so much money has gone into private equity funds and venture capital funds yeah. that... I think right now those areas have gotten extremely fully priced or probably overpriced. That's why we're seeing 
more down rounds and also more IPOs coming out below the last private valuation. Well, it's very hard to get a read on what Spotify will actually price at today. There is no IPO price. They will bring this to market. They'll bring the buyers and sellers together, and hopefully they'll establish a price in a couple of hours. But when you There look will at, be a price. There I, will be I, a I, price I, eventually. Yes. But it's very hard to gauge from what happened in the private markets what will ultimately happen in the public markets. How do you gauge at the moment the ability of these companies to go from being private to going public and achieving the kind of valuations they've achieved in private markets? Well, I think it depends on two things. Um, one is the specifics of the individual deal, and two, the overall environment in which it happens. And the problem is these companies don't c control the latter. Spotify probably dearly wishes it had done this a month or two ago, but now it's too late to fix that, yeah. right? The only thing they can do is run their business as effectively as they can. And look, the reason that they're doing this is because they, you know, they need to provide some liquidity to some of their investors and 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 key key talent. That's you know, that's what this is about. I, I read the Zeitgeist today, and, and folks, I want to make clear: Spotify's gone beyond usual Wall Street talk. Actually, people are like curious about this transaction. Mark Mahaney, RBC Capital's got a big pop, a hundred ish, out to two hundred dollars per share. Fine. The real under the real backstory is how institutional shareholders will behave versus retail. Do you buy that idea that they're two different markets and they will react differently on a transaction? Uh, well, yeah, I think that there there's truth in that. It's also true that institutions are not monolithic and sometimes neither are retail investors. The you know, whether or not those two forces coincide is the key question, because if you have a lot of excitement from both institutions and retail, <clears throat> that's Boom. when you get nice pops. Yeah. Um, sometimes, though, you actually have cross currents. I don't know what will happen, obviously, in this I, case. I, fair. You don't know. I don't know. Fair. You know. What's going to happen, Joe? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm looking at the spread of buys on Spotify today, and the buys go from target prices of 80 to a target price of 220. I would oh. say that spread on the buys just tells you that many of these analysts have no idea where this is going to price today. I would also say, based on this Spotify IPO, it does raise a question whether the IPO now is just about the exit and not raising capital, and whether of that's course. a broader story or whether that's a Spotify story. Which one is it, Seth? I think it can be either. I think it depends on whether or not you need to raise capital or whether you need to provide some liquidity to But clearly at the investors. moment, in private markets, if you want to raise capital, you can. So why go public? Where did we... Well, excuse, I don't mean to interrupt. I just... This is... Can you... Can we get Seth Masters back for our six-hour program we're doing on Thursday? Are we doing okay. a six-hour Spotify program? We're doing six-hour Spotify. <laughs> okay. This is fascinating. Seth Masters, thank you so much today. And uh, we got to get you back to continue this discussion when Spotify is either 80 or what was it? It's, it's Bono 220 coming. Is the... Yeah, 220 is the other buy. That's from RBC. That's Mark Mahaney. That's Mr. Mahaney. Yeah. yeah. yeah when he's Full disclosure, uh, Mr. Mahaney has the respect of Bloomberg surveillance as well. Seth Masters, uh, for years with Bernstein, we thank him as he goes out and looks for angelic type of companies. Michael Zizis with Morgan Stanley. John Farrell, help us with Michael Zizis on Washington. Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. public policy strategist. Michael Zizis, tech getting absolutely hammered over the last few weeks, and the president's had had a hand to play. This administration, are we going to see the policy or just the rhetoric? Well, the rhetoric at first. Uh, so the first and foremost when it comes to, to any kind of regulation or tech regulation in particular is 
uh, you got to know exactly what you want to regulate and how you want to regulate it. And uh, as far as we can see, policymakers are still trying to understand the complexity of the issue. So, um, uh, and, you know, there's not much existing law that we can tell that the president can sort of act on unilaterally by kind of rewriting regulation. So um, I think the pressure is clearly there. There's clearly a bipartisan push um, for more regulatory issues on, uh, on tech, but it's unclear exactly what the path is. So you have to, you have to price in uh, that Washington's serious about this, but what exactly it's going to look like, uh, it's going to take a while to develop. Well, Michael, who in Washington is serious about what? Because there's a bipartisan push in Congress, I assume, around the personal data issue. Then within the White House, there's a separate issue. The president seems to be renewing his attack on Amazon. They're two very, very different stories. What do you lend more weight to at the moment as far as you think something might actually happen in terms of policy? Well, you know, the, the Amazon thing is interesting in the sense that it, it's, it's unclear to me exactly uh, what the president wants to do. So we're paying a lot of attention to it. But, you know, other than the president expressing a, a grievance on, on Amazon, which is which, you know, by his own words, is, is related to um, their media coverage of him as well. It's hard to suss out exactly what he wants to change there, whereas you know, the tech regulatory issue, there's actually some some clear grievances that need to be addressed. So. It's hard for me to game out exactly what the U.S. hypothetically could do on Amazon because I'm not sure what they want to change. The tech issue, there's there's some clear implications of what they want to do. It's just a question of taking time to actually get down that path. When you dovetail your work with your economist, Ellen Zentner, how do you treat the new fiscal policy and fiscal realities to come? Is it a second quarter event or does that wait for later in the year? Um, probably more of a later in the year story. So I mean, we, we've been talking a lot about um, what fiscal policy actually delivers, and you know we think it's, it's pretty clear what it delivers from a macro perspective. It adds a few tenths, um, you know, our yeah, okay. GDP. But you know, the the, the question is, um, what do we actually get for those deficits? And um, you know, did we get something more sustainable beyond that? And a lot of that is going to have to do with corporate behavior and, and what some of the corporate incentives created by tax reforms were. And some of our questions are basically, um, did we actually extend the cycle? And if not, um, if the cycle is going to kind of end or start to slow around the same time that some of these corporate incentives created by tax reforms start to roll off, like immediate expensing, um, and they could possibly sync up with things like a more restrictive interest deductibility on the corporate side, you get a lot of pro-cyclical behavior um, at the wrong time. So, you know, all we think about is we, we know we know almost by definition that growth is better this year than it would have been um, without the tax yeah. reform. But what do they get us beyond that? That's what we have to price in now, and that's a lot more complicated. And, and, and would you agree with me that within the machinery of fiscal analysis, we really haven't seen good analysis yet. I mean, this stuff is heavy lifting, and that comes in April. We're going to begin to see people really think about what the dynamics are of guns and butter financing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And there was obviously this big debate around tax reform as to how much it would really increase the deficit, mm-hmm. right? So the static analysis was one and a half trillion, and um, the dynamic analysis said, oh, it'll only be, you know, 1 to 1.2. And, you know, then if you believe the president's rhetoric or some of the, you know, the real 
optimist within his own party. So actually, I think it was Secretary Mnuchin who said, actually, we're going to um, get an extra trillion dollars of revenue off of this. It's not going to increase the deficit at all. Um, so the, the, the sort of truer deficit side of the story starts to become more clear over the course of the year. And, you know, then, of course, the question is, uh, you know, going forward over the long term, um, have we done as much as we can, you know, cumulatively in terms of fiscal expansion? Is there room for more fiscal expansion in the next downturn? Now, that's hypothetically one of the, um, you know, mm-hmm. one of the issues we that markets are going to have to account for here. And I think it's one of the, re- you know, th- there's a whole host of policy issues where in 2017, yeah. you got good stuff. In 2018, you got to account for the yeah. more complicated and, story. <clears throat> this is one of them. It's not the only thing that's driving yeah. markets, but it adds to the volatility. And John Farrell Michaels has this, had a great, great concept, which was this is the dessert before vegetables president. Oh, back not to that front. you would understand that. So you'd, you'd you, have, you have the chocolate and the ice cream. You have the fancy, expensive cakes that you're known to wander by with before. Yeah. I understand. You have your That's like what turnips. children would do. Yes. Yeah. yeah you, also, do, you do it the other way around. Uh, yes. I still do because I'm an adult now and yes. I can. Um, Michael Zizas, just to wrap things up, the third policy tool that I want to get to you is um, with trade. Um, we're reporting this morning that NAFTA and the United States, the United States pushing NAFTA partners to, to come up with a preliminary deal to announce next week. Do you see things settling down on the trade side or, or ramping up again? Can I say both? <laughs> well, you can, but you've got to tell me where. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, the, the, the problem is, or at least the problem from an investor's perspective, is that in order for uh, the administration to achieve what it probably wants to achieve here, which is a, a relatively benign negotiated outcomes, both in terms of NAFTA and in terms of China, uh, it's following a negotiating path that requires them to kind of ramp up the risk, ramp up the escalatory rhetoric. And so you follow a risky path, you sort of play with fire to get to um, hopefully a benign outcome. So because of that, you're supposed to think about this, at least from our perspective, you're supposed to think about this as we're ultimately going to end up in a place that's not too different economically from where we started, but the risk that we deviate from that path along the way um, is, is pretty bad. So there's going to be we think in the end, a fair amount of de-escalation, but there's a lot of escalation in the interim. So it kind of feels like we're headed towards smooth poly, but we ultimately end up in a place that looks more like Bush 2002 steel tariff. And we're certainly nowhere near smooth hauling. Let's be let's be no. clear about that. The average tariff of the United States compared no, but, to <clears throat> compared to yesteryear is yeah. radically different. Michael Zizis, thank you so much, Morgan Stanley. James Sweeney with us with Credit Suisse, always 18 ways to go with James Sweeney. Let's start there on the micro data with the chief economist for, for Credit Suisse. Um, James Sweeney, w- when you look at frequent data, monthly data, is that more valuable or do you want more smoothed quarterly and annual data? Which has better value? Well, it, it really depends on what the question is. Uh, but yeah, we do we do spend a lot of time in the in the short term month-on-month data, but we, yeah. we basically, I would say the view has more of a kind of quarterly view. Yeah. So we, we you kind of have a sense of what the noise is and, and what the signal is. Right now, there's a slowdown in manufacturing growth momentum globally. Right. 
and understanding the kind of very high-frequency data is, is really the best way to see that. I, I bring that up because right now a massive conundrum over our economic growth, where we are, what the one-quarter winter subpar Q1 is versus where we're going to be. Let me not ask a dumb question. Just give us a general statement on the Credit Suisse view on America's economic growth. Well, America's economic growth is is quite good right now. So, I mean, the labor market has been delivering around four and a half percent annualized growth in in total nominal labor income. So, just add up everyone's paychecks; they've been growing at four and a half percent for about ten years. That that growth is essentially continuing. So, the mix of what's driving it is it jobs, is it wages, yeah. is shifting is shifting a little bit. But basically, the the, the payroll income is coming in. Um, that's going a little bit farther because taxes have gone down a little bit recently. And on the business side, profit income is strong and businesses are getting a little more confident and investment plans are rising. So if you're looking at consumption and investment, the data have been good recently. Right. The outlook is good. It's, it's furthered by basically income and, and cash flows. And, you know, otherwise, you know, trade okay. is a little bit of a drag, housing is a well, little bit of a drag, et cetera. From the 30,000-foot view of James Sweeney, we go down to the reality. John Tucker joining us uh, this morning. Are we seeing pay up and taxes down, Mr. The, the, Tucker? Well, with the payroll, yeah, they're, they're taking less out of my paycheck. But Just uh, just turn the mic off and ignore him. He is trying to cause trouble. Dag nabbit, this is important. <laughs> but the property taxes are going up. James Sweeney, I bring this up because we get huge mail when guys like you say incomes are up and taxes are down. And, and most of our, our, our listeners and viewers just say, really? So, so where is taxes down? Where are taxes down? So, well, withholdings are down uh, according to the new withholding schedule. So, you know, basically disposable income after tax income will go up a little faster than it did last year. Okay. Um, so it's it's straightforward. I mean, whether that should change the outlook for the economy substantially mm -hmm. is, a, is a different question. I mean, we know that taxes have gone down most right. of the people who are paying the most taxes, which are very high yeah. income people. So, you know, we don't have the consumption outlook profoundly okay. changing as a result of the tax, tax plan. There was a great Bloomberg View piece, uh, Noah Smith, I believe, which really emphasized our need to grow exports in America. What is the export import dynamic now? as we try to figure out where economic growth is? Well, the big change is a lot of the tech sector has basically left the country in the last 10 or 15 years and moved to Asia. And so what that means is when you have this kind of stimulus and this pickup in business investment that we're seeing, then you're naturally going to get a surge in imports. And we are getting that surge in imports now. So you know, our exports are benefiting somewhat from good global growth and global trade volumes, which are rebounding from a slump from a couple of years ago. Yeah. But, um, but really the short-term story is that imports are surging, business equipment. I mean, one of the most stunning charts we have is the is the trade balance in capital goods, which as a share of capital goods sales in the U.S. is, is kind of more than minus 15% in deficit right now. And it used to be kind of, used to meaning 10 years ago, used to be kind of close to flat on, on trend. So we've moved into this enormous structural trade deficit in capital goods, which includes a lot of business equipment. And the reason is because a lot of factories basically have relocated to Asia in the last in the last 15 years. So in a roundabout sense, all this 
stimulus and this pickup in business activity, which is increasing GDP on the investment line, is subtracting GDP on the trade balance line through this surge of imports and, and hence the, the decline in the, in, the, in the kind of net trade number. James Sweeney, great to catch up with you, the Credit Suisse Managing Director and Chief Economist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.